Well, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, something, some form of God's Word, pull that out. We are going to uh, wrap up our study this morning in 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 12. This is the final segment of this letter, and uh, I want to give us a little bit of context. If you've been here all the way along, then you'll have this. If you haven't, this will sort of get you up to speed. Uh, In 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 and 3, we find out that Paul sent Timothy to this young church in a small city called Thessalonica, small by our standards, large by theirs. Um, But he sent him there to establish and exhort them in their young faith so that no one would be shaken by the afflictions that they were facing. So it was a very hostile environment. It was very costly to be a Christian, to follow Christ. For anyone to know that you have given your life to Christ, that was incredibly costly. Paul and his little team were were basically thrown out of town, and he grew more and more worried about them, and so sent Timothy back to find out how they were doing. Then we find out in chapter 4, verse 1, that... uh, Paul is trying to kind of add to what he deposited there while he was living in their midst, which is a very short period of time. Timothy came back with a great report, but there was still need for growth, as you can imagine. Like we have still, we still have need for growth, right? So Paul says this, as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. That's the Christian life, isn't it? We get instruction from God's Word. Uh, We understand it by the power of God's Spirit, and we grow as a result, but we don't ever arrive. We just keep on growing, and we're called to, to grow more and more and more. So now as we come to the end of this book, uh, Paul sort of crams a whole lot of stuff into a very short ending. It's, it's not a lot of verses. But as we get here, he's going to reinforce a complementarian culture. That's an important phrase. Even today, there's a lot of conversation around what that means and how it applies. But for the sake of this message, I'm thinking about leading, following, and standing strong together in the Lord. That's the pattern that Paul gave the Thessalonians, and that's the pattern that we still have today. Leading, following, and standing strong together in the Lord. This passage is probably not new information for them. Remember, he left them a lot of information before being thrown out of town, and so he's probably reminding them of some things that he taught them while he was there. Here's three assumptions I think that Paul made about that community. And again, I think these apply to us. First of all, he assumed equal value of every person in that church. Equal value. And even outside of that church in that community, the people that they were trying to reach. Equal value across the boards. Secondly, he assumed a diversity in roles, responsibilities, and responses within the community of faith. Roles, responsibilities, and responses within the community of faith. And then lastly, a shared responsibility for the welfare of the whole. 
every single person in that church had a part to play. They weren't all the same parts, but they all were necessary in order for that church to thrive. So we start with following leaders in verses 12 and 13. And I'm just going to say this as an aside, just, just so that we're all on the same page. This is one of those passages that pastors come to and they're like, okay. This basically looks like if I preach this, I'm kind of trying to take care of me. And what I want you to know is, and if you've been here for 21 years, you know that we're just going to preach the Bible and whatever verse comes along, we're just going to talk about what that verse says. It has nothing to do with me in the sense of there's no agenda here. We're just going to try and hear from Paul how we are supposed to function as a church. And leaders and followers are a part of the pattern. And so this first section talks about responding to leaders. And then we're going to talk about what leaders need to be doing as they're caring for followers. So with that said, look at verse 12. Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly. You can see how this could seem just a tad self-serving. <laughs> to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, as I thought about these commands... I thought they're particularly challenging today for two reasons. First of all, there is widespread visibility of public failure among Christian leaders, right? We've all heard the stories. We've seen it in the news. Social media is on fire like on a weekly basis about somebody else who has had a moral failure or is punting their faith or deconstructing or whatever. So that makes it kind of hard to trust leaders, doesn't it? Secondly, there is an unbelievable spirit of division, strife, dissension in the church and among churches, maybe more so than ever in our history. It's like we're competing with each other. And I don't even get that. Why would the church compete with itself when it's called to reach the world with the greatest news ever? Of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Why would churches do that? I don't know. I just know that it's happening. And I know that that rivalry goes right in the face of what we're talking about today. In a sense, if Paul is saying, I want you to respect and esteem your leaders, the spirit in our culture is... I don't need to respect anybody. If anything, people need to respect me and what I'm doing and what I'm about. So you can see how that could be in conflict with what Paul's urging to be done here. It really gets down to issues around authority. And I just want to remind us, the church is unlike any entity on earth. It is the bride of Christ it is God's only plan for reaching the world until he returns. So the pattern has something to do with authority. And there are other contexts where authority is involved. I'll just remind us, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, 
Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now we hear that and we think, well, yeah, that that probably ought to happen. Here's a little tougher one, Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. That's a little harder, isn't it? Ephesians 6, 5 through 6, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. In our context, this would be employer, employee. Um, Obey them with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as men, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And then lastly, Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority, listen to this, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, our fear in, I'm just going to say, like coming under any form of authority, our fear in that is that they will abuse their authority. And I'm just going to tell you, That will happen sometimes. It happened to them all the time. And yet Paul never for a minute pulled back from these instructions. He said, you know what? Authority is part of God's pattern for this broken world. And it will be used improperly. But as God's people, we're going to do our best to adhere to his pattern. Because all of us are under his authority. And if we'll do that well, it will speak volumes to the world that is constantly fighting for authority. Now, I will mention in each of those passages that I just read, those who are in authority, every single one of them have very clear instructions about how they're supposed to use their authority. And it's never for their own benefit. Never. It's only for the good of those they lead. So here's a principle that we can have in mind as we go about applying these passages. Um, God puts some in authority for the good of the whole. God puts some in authority for the good of the whole. Specifically for the church in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, it says, He, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, all leaders, all with spiritual authority in the church. He gave all of them to equip the saints for the work of ministry. No exceptions. Everybody's involved. Ultimately, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the church would be healthy and fruitful and influential in a broken world. That's the reason that God established leaders. So coming back to verse 12 and 13, Paul outlines how we are to relate to those who are in spiritual authority. And he says, they are those who labor among you, 
who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. We'll get a little more into those activities um, as we go along here. But it's interesting to me, Paul had authority over this church when he planted it. And what he's doing here is actually a transfer of leadership. It's a beautiful picture of succession. He's, he's essentially writing this down and giving these instructions because there will be leaders in Thessalonica that will be responsible for the welfare of that church while Paul is somewhere else starting another church. So it's a beautiful picture of that being passed along. This group of leaders, they have no more worth than anyone else in the church. There is absolutely nothing associated from a value perspective to having power or authority. If anything, if you understand authority properly from a biblical perspective, it's responsibility that you might not actually want if you really get what it means. It's like, no thanks, let somebody else have that. I'll be a follower, I'll just, you know, tell me what to do, I'll be glad to do it. Some are put in this responsibility for the good of the church. Now, appointing spiritual leaders, particularly elders, was a pattern of the early church and still is a pattern today. In Titus, Paul wrote to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. That was another place where they planted a church. And he says, so that you might put what remained into order. So leadership is associated with order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Um, just jot down Acts 14.23, another reference to the early apostles appointing elders everywhere they went. In that context, it was in the region of Galatia. So it was a pattern for a church to be planted, formed, matured at some level, and then for leaders to be established to care for that church as it goes along. Elder leadership... It's not, the, it's not the rich guys. It's not the great business guys. It, it's just not about that. It's not worldly categories. It is character and competence. And those, those qualities are outlined in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You can go there. And Paul said, this is the kind of guy you're looking for in these positions of spiritual oversight. Notice also there is a plurality of leaders. There's not one guy. There's no celebrity pastor. It's not the one person and, and he like the buck stops with him. It's always in a community of leadership where those leaders are accountable to each other in a very meaningful way. Uh, you've probably heard us say before here um, we recently added a couple of elders, I, I mean in the last few years, um, Austin Henderson and Brian Hogue. And what we said about that is it's not a popularity contest. We're not looking like for these big hitters, you know, they're going to really take us to the next level. It's we're looking for, praying for, and you should too, praying for men who are eldering without the title. That's the guy we want who he doesn't need to have this role. He doesn't even need to be known in that way. That's just how he lives. He meets these qualifications just simply as a way of life. If you're aspiring to be an elder, 
that's my encouragement to you is don't aspire to the title or the role. Aspire to the way of life. That's just how you live. If you will do that, man, there's no telling how God will use you. I said this earlier, but biblical authority is not given for the personal gain of those who have it. Power in the church does not come with perks. At least it shouldn't. Unfortunately, it often does. And shame on those leaders who use their position of power for their own good. That is completely contradictory to the guidance of God's word. It is with responsibility and great expectation that one is given these roles. The response to biblical leadership, according to Paul, is respect and esteem. And it's simply, it's just an acknowledgement, it's a recognition. God has put you in this place, and I'm assuming that uh, he put you there for the good of me and this community, all of that. We get that feel from Hebrews 13, 17, where uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls and this is huge, as those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So a a, a good biblical leader in the church understands that he is going to give an account. God is going to ask him. He's not going to ask the church what they were doing in terms of his job. He's going to ask him, What were you doing with the assignment that I gave you? He's going to ask the church, how did you fulfill these instructions that Paul is giving to you as followers? Here's a couple of thoughts about how to practically follow well. Once again, I wish I were a visiting pastor. I want you to know that I would say this anywhere, any church on earth. If I'm preaching this passage, here's what I'm going to say. First of all, pray your guts out. Pray for your leaders. Go to God on their behalf and ask him to work in their lives. We need it desperately. We will never grow beyond the need for grace, ever. So please pray fervently. Secondly, believe the best and ask lots of questions. Just assume that there's good intent. And if you're concerned about something or have questions about something, then ask them. And ask me. (laughs) It's so discouraging to hear that somebody was asking questions of somebody else that can't possibly answer it. Like, give me a shot. Give our staff a shot. Give our elders a shot to interact with whatever questions or concerns that you have. I promise you we care. And there's a really good chance that we have been thinking about whatever it is you might be wondering. And we would love to talk with you about it. Thirdly, contribute. And I don't mean that just financially. That's a part of the picture. But I mean holistically, contribute more than you critique or consume. The American church is just all about consumption. And it's just not supposed to be that way for me or you. So when you come into this body, this community of faith, 
your mindset is, I'm here to give. I expect my leaders to give, and they can expect me to do the same. Contribute more than you critique or consume. And then finally, extend as much grace to your leaders as you would like for them to extend to you. We all need it. The church ought to be the most gracious place on earth. Doesn't mean we condone sin or just look the other way or that kind of thing. It means that we are going after fruitfulness and maturity in Christ. And we extend grace to one another to be in a process, all right? Now let's turn to leading followers. So those who are leading, Paul says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Now, if the church were all about kind of this power struggle and good for those who have authority, I promise you this verse wouldn't be in our Bible. But notice Paul is saying, hey, leaders, you don't just get to do the fun stuff. You don't get to just do the stuff that you enjoy doing. You are supposed to be particularly mindful of groups like the idol, the faint-hearted, the weak, and those who might cause you to feel a little impatient. That's where you're supposed to exert your leadership of care and service. So let's work through this, this list. Admonish the idol. So the idea of admonishing is corrective influence. It is, it is somewhat directive. Now you can do that with gentleness and gracefully, but it's still direction given to the idol, and that specifically is the unruly or the undisciplined. It wasn't simply like lazy people who wouldn't work. In that culture, there was some issues there, but this was really just more of difficult. People who are just difficult, they're contrarians. They're always just kind of pushing against the flow. And he's saying, those, those folks, you need to admonish them. You need, and honestly, I think more than anything, it's just calling it out, just saying privately, not publicly, but uh, just saying, hey, I've noticed something. You just sort of seem to be at odds with where we're going. Can we talk about that? It's amazing how just bringing that to the light, putting it on the table can be huge. Sometimes people will not even be aware of it. That's just how they kind of walk. Secondly, encourage, reassure, persuade even those who are faint-hearted. That would be those who are overwhelmed or anxious or timid. So notice it's, it's coming alongside them and being a voice of reassurance, of hope, building up their faith. Um, thirdly, helping those who are weak, attending to them, assisting them, supporting them. We all need that at times, right? So it's noticing those who have those needs and then coming alongside them. Now, the weak may be the... the the hardest to define of all of these descriptors, um, I think the two big categories could be the weak could represent the immature. It could also represent the defenseless. It probably represents both. Now, when I speak about the immature, probably this would be two categories, the legalist and the licentious. So the legalist, they're the ones who are 
freedom killers, right? They're rule followers, and they think everybody else ought to follow the rules that they follow, okay? That's freedom killers. The licentious, those are freedom abusers. They're like, hey, man, it's all grace. It's all good. I just kind of do what I want. Paul is saying you need to help those because there's immaturity that is prompting those kinds of perspectives. But also, for those who are defenseless, those who need assistance, they need someone to stand in for them, to stand up for them, to come alongside them in their vulnerability. Uh, Leaders are called to help with that very intentionally. And then lastly, he says, be patient with them all. And uh, the picture here is long-suffering. And I had this thought about uh, patience. Um, Impatience can be very condescending. Have you ever experienced that where somebody's just like, you ought to be doing that faster. You ought to be working harder. You're making my life difficult. Well, there's a lot of arrogance in that, right? So we're supposed to be patient, long-suffering in that respect. All right, so let's keep moving. Uh, The third thing Paul does here is give a rapid-fire list of commands that are all around standing strong. And the question we might ask is, are we standing or staggering? Um, This is a great list to follow. Let me read it. Verse 15, see to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of of evil. Now, this could be a little overwhelming. There's a lot there, but let's work through this. And I've just kind of put it in two big categories. Kimberly and I did this with our kids uh, as they were growing up. This is one of our favorite little passages where we would just say, you know what? There's things that you ought to do always and things that you ought to do never. Now, if you're in a conflict with your spouse, don't ever use those terms. I did that recently. The word came out of my mouth like you always. And Kimberly looked at me like, what? What did you just say? It's like, I'm uh, busted. Okay. Um, In this sense, though, these are really great. Always do good. Resist retaliation. Seek the good of those who are around you. Always rejoice. Consciously celebrate what you already have in Christ. Pray without ceasing. I heard a pastor say, do not do this in the car while you're driving with your eyes closed. Right? Just like, this is an attitude of prayer. This is an investment in regular, extended, I would say strenuous prayer. Very attentive to what God is uh, doing in your life and around you. And then finally, give thanks. James says, all that we have is a gift of God. So regardless of your circumstances, you can give thanks for any number of things, uh, not the least of which God's word, God's son, God's spirit, forgiveness, community of faith, 
and we could go on and on and on. Don't miss that Paul says these things that you're to always do, that's God's will for you. You know, we're always like, gosh, should I buy that house? Should I take that job? Should I marry her? Should I go to this place or that place? Wanting God's will desperately, it's like, hey, man, this is as clear as it gets. You can know 100% this is God's will for you. And if you will adhere to these, I feel very certain that God will lead you in all of those other decisions that you have about your life. Never quench the spirit. Don't, this, the picture here is extinguishing the fire. I am absolutely confident that the Spirit is always seeking to lead you. We're told to be filled with or directed by the Spirit. So quenching the Spirit would essentially be to say, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And I hope the Spirit's good with it. In fact, I might even ask Him to bless what I want to do. Versus saying, I want to welcome the Spirit to do whatever He wants to do. And I will get in line with that, even if it kind of blows some categories that I have. I just, want, I just want to do what the Spirit tells me to do. He specifically points out, never despise prophecies. Um, we talked extensively about prophecy in our gifting series, so I won't go into that. Um, I do love Eugene Peterson's uh, interpretation of this in our context. And just keep in mind, we have a closed canon. Our Bible is complete. This is 100% certain God's Word. So everything that we might, quote, hear from God is underneath this Word. It has to line up. It has to be consistent with and aligned with what, God, what we know God said. You can tell me all day long, God told me, and I'm just going to go, well, it has to line up with this. If it doesn't, I'm going with this. Not with what you said or what you think or what you feel. And you should do the same with me. However, God is always speaking. God is always leading. He is always guiding. And so we ought to just be so attentive to that, welcoming. God may say something to you through another person in this church, and you ought to welcome that. It's not scripture. It's not inerrant. But it, it is God speaking into your life, and the Holy Spirit can guide you and I into all truth long as it's aligning with this word. So we don't want to despise prophecy. That's probably a key way to quench the spirit. Um, ex don't ever accept truth claims without testing. Once again, put them to the test of the word and then don't participate in evil. Specifically in their context, that would have been anything that was out of, line, out of alignment with apostolic teaching and encouragement. So just really getting lined up with the word. Um, keep moving here. As Paul's wrapping up the letter, our tendency might be to just sort of blow past. It's like these closing comments, but these are huge. Um, Paul recognizes that Christ is coming. They don't know when that's going to be. And in the meantime, 
We're supposed to live a certain way, and that's kind of this in-between time that we've all been living in. But it's a waiting room with a view. Look at verse 23. Paul prays, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Uh, sanctification is mentioned there. I love uh, a description that I came across. Uh, here it is. It'll be on the screen. Sanctification is the ongoing supernatural work of God to rescue justified sinners from the disease of sin and to conform them to the image of his son, holy, Christ-like, and empowered to do good works. Now, this part of our gift of salvation that we have received, you've got justification, sanctification, and glorification. This part is a cooperative process. Now, it sounds like from this, Paul is praying that their sanctification would be completed in this life. In fact, there are some who suggest that you and I can be fully sanctified before we die. I think there are a lot of problems with that way of thinking simply because I don't know anybody who's perfect. Haven't ever heard of them. Now, there may be somebody out there who claims to be perfect, but ask their friends and then you'll find out the truth. I think it's better to understand holiness, which is the outcome of sanctification. Think about holiness and what that is. It seems like we should think of that as the aim in this life and then the arrival after this life. So all Paul is doing here is praying that God would do what he's already promised to do, and that is to bring them to a place of absolute holiness. And he's already said earlier that there's going to be this moment where we're caught up to be with the Lord in the air. That's the place. That's the arrival. That's when the train gets to the station. So he's just praying for that and asking that God would do that on their behalf. Um, until then, I guess I'll say this, uh, Peter um, urges us to be holy as God is holy. And it's not really a self-will thing. I would say it's a submissive thing. It's, it's a thing, again, to invite God to do a work, to do an ongoing work of sanctification until we do get to that place of completeness. And um, Paul says here, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. You can count on that. And all of the hope that's tied up in that, I think will motivate us to cooperate with his work of sanctification in the here and now. Lastly, verse 25 through 28, I wrote one more thing in your outline, but I don't want you to think it's an afterthought. These are some very important phrases. Verse 25, brothers, pray for us. That is the apostle Paul asking these brand new Christians to pray for him. So that must mean that leaders need prayer. I'll, I'll say that twice in this sermon and uh, ask you to, to be faithful in that. Verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I haven't seen a lot of holy kissing going on around here but, but I'll talk about that in just a second. Verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
is with you. Um, the holy kiss in that context, and just so you know, this shows up in some other places. Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, and 1 Peter 5. All commands to do the holy kiss. So here's the thing. In that culture, that was, that was just a term of familial affection. It was just simply saying, we're family. And that was a way of greeting one another. Um, and I want to say specifically, he says, greet all the brothers. So do you see what he's doing there? When you got to kind of get up, up close and personal in our context, it's probably a, a, a hug, a side hug or something like that. But you're supposed to do that with everybody. It's not selective. You don't get to say, you know, I'll be kind of close to those people, but those people over there, no, we're all family. And this was a way of reminding them, we're all family. And so there's no distinctions. There's no, remember I said at the beginning, no one has any more worth than anyone else. That means if you encounter somebody who's a brother or sister in Christ, you're to treat them that way. That's just standard operating procedure for the church. And think about what the world sees when they see that. A world that's full of distinctions, full of rivalry, full of competition. Lastly, he gives them an emphatic command. This is one of the strongest commands he actually gives in any of his letters to have this letter read to everyone. Um, a couple of things there. Paul is making sure that everyone gets to hear it. I'm sure there was significant illiteracy in their culture. So imagine the folks who can't read if they can't get access to what Paul is telling them to do in the church. So he's making sure everybody gets this. I think it also points to the inspiration of Scripture. He believes that this is something that the church needs for that time and will need ongoing. Uh, for infinity. So, lastly, he concludes with a sincere desire for grace, uh, saturating the Thessalonian church. And as I said earlier, I think like this ought to be the most gracious place on earth that we don't just tolerate each other, but we're for each other. We are expectant that God is at work. Like when I'm with you, I'm expecting that God is at work in you. And he's doing a beautiful work. And he's going to complete that work. And then we're going to get to celebrate for all of eternity the work that God has done in his presence. That's good news, isn't it? That ought to just permeate our community of faith day in and day out all of the time. And that will at least get the attention of a broken, sin-wrecked world and change part of it. That's what we're asking God to do. So let me give you a minute. Goodness gracious, we're way over. Um, ask the Lord. I'm just going to pray for us. Um, but I want you to ask the Lord. Lots of opportunities for application here, right? Um, thinking particularly about body life, just how we relate to each other and the various roles and responsibilities God's given us. So let me pray for us and, uh, and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, uh, 
it's just been an encouraging morning. So grateful to be with the body of Christ. So thankful to hear of what you're doing on the other side of the world uh, with the angels and through the angels. So thankful to be reminded from your word. Um, this good work that you have been and will do in your people, in your church, until you return. And so, Father, we ask you to just have your way. We want to be submissive more than anything to you. We want to be attentive to you. And we're trusting that you will do a beautiful, beautiful work until you return. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.